Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. Today's episode, I'm speaking with Jeff Langlands. Now, Jeff is currently the general counsel at BT Corporate, Digital and Networks. Fantastic discussion. Jeff takes us through his career, early start with DLA Piper, of course. Um, We've got some common ground there, so we talk a bit about that. And then he takes us through his career arc at BT. There were lots of takeaways for me. You're really going to enjoy this episode, but here are some of the takeaways that I've got. Attitude. When I asked Steph about, you know, what does he look for when he looks to recruit, mentor, um, and help inspire his team? He he looks for attitude. That's what we all look for. And being comfortable with a squiggly career line. I love that. I haven't heard that before, a squiggly career line. And then we do a bit of a deeper dive on how having six monthly operation reviews with the other uh, business leaders in the function really sharpens and focuses the mind to be able to report on um, the legal function like a business. I love that takeaway too. So you're going to love the episode. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy what's coming up. Jeff Langlands. Welcome to the show. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm looking forward to the discussion. Likewise, Jim. Thanks very much for having me on. Delighted to be here. Now, Jeff, which part of the world does this podcast find you in right now? This finds me in a very sunny East London in the nice. UK. Nice. Yeah. You've got, uh, BT's got some new premises there, don't they? I, I haven't we managed do. it. Yet. Yep. Yeah, um, we've got a, a, very, a very nice new HQ. So, uh, yeah, we're enjoying being back in the office. Fantastic. Now, Jeff... Take us through the career arc of Jeff Langlands. <laughs> Let me start at the beginning. I'm from Edinburgh in Scotland. I uh, went to school there apart from two years, which I spent in Perth in Western Australia. A great city. I was there 2005 to seven, raising the kids there. What a, an idyllic city it is. Yeah, it was, it was beautiful. It was pure luck. It was down to yep. uh, my dad's work that we all moved out there when I was 14. And as you say, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're into kind of sport and the outdoors and you're 14, there's few better places in the world than, than Perth. That was my dad's first overseas assignment with work, having spent the first 40 years of his life uh, working in, in, and living in Edinburgh. And he started in Perth. And then the next stop was, I think, Lagos in Nigeria, then Azerbaijan, then Kuwait just after the war. And, and it kind of just changed. So the high point was definitely, uh, definitely Perth. Downhill after that was correct. So. Okay, so Perth for a few years when you were a teenager. Yep. Yeah, which was fantastic. And back, back, back to Scotland. Did law at Glasgow University. Qualified into one of the the larger firms in Scotland. Came down to London with them, and shortly after that, joined DLA Piper, which uh, which I know you know well. Yeah, I do. I think I joined the year after you left. If I've done yeah. my research correctly, I joined in two thousand and seven. Yeah, um, you left two thousand six, did you? I did. That's right. That's yeah. right. Yeah, I was there for for around about four years. You know, as a junior uh, up to kind of I guess mid level associate, and 
uh, loved it. Absolutely. Still love, love the firm, love the people there. You know, it felt like a, when I joined there, it felt like a disruptor, you know, a challenger, um, not a conventional kind of London city firm, but one with, uh, with a lot of ambition and, and, and a clear strategy actually. And, and, you know, really, really enjoyed my four years there. For sure. Now I've given a couple of shout outs to Simon Levine, the current CEO. Of uh-huh. It was the CEO when I left to in 2016. I haven't heard back from him yet, but let's really, see. let's really? not quite right. I have actually, I, I'm teasing him if he's listening, but I haven't heard back from him, but it's a fantastic firm. It's funny. I, so it was when I was in Perth, um, up until 2007, I thought to myself, that story, I've got to get the kids out of there. I've got to get them to understand what the real world is like. And that's when I moved them to the Middle East. And that's when I joined Delay Piper, a mm-hmm. firm I actually hadn't heard of at the is time. Is that right? At, uh-huh. at two, yeah, because remember in the 2004, five, it was a reg- essentially a regional UK Indeed. firm. It then emerged with Piper Rydnik in about 2005 yeah. or six, I think it was. Tell me about some of the learnings during that period and how that was formative in your career. So I was there 2001 to 2006 and it was busy. You know, it was at that time DLA and I was in the corporate department. So we were doing quite a lot of private equity work and quite a lot of sort of capital markets work. And DLA at that point, always on the kind of league tables came pretty much near the top of, from a volume perspective of, of deals. Right. Maybe yep. not value. They weren't necessarily yep. doing the billion pound uh, deals of the magic circle. But uh, as a junior, it was just fantastic because you got exposed to a lot of activity and uh, you, you, you kind of were able to cut your teeth because the, the, the sizes of the deals weren't necessarily as big as, as elsewhere yep. in the city. So, you know, you live and breathe it when you're, when you're that age, Jim, and, and kind of... You do. Um, and I, I absolutely did that. As I say, a lot of friends from, from that time. And for others listening, you know, earlier in their career, I, I talk about just absolutely leaning in, okay? Living, you talk, you said, said living and breathing. That's what you've got to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's what you've got to do in your entire career. But early, it's so important um, that you do live and breathe whatever you've chosen to do. You lean right in. I talk about making every year count for two in the early years and the magic that has longer term because it's like compound interest. Okay, so leaning in nice and early, learning as much as you possibly can, um, yeah. I think is critical. So it sounds like yeah. that's exactly what you did. No, it, it absolutely was like that. And and you probably don't realize it until it was really when I joined BT and it was a different kind of kind of role, but still in M&A. And then you realize that actually you have learned quite a lot and you have been immersed in an experience where you've you picked up a lot of a lot of things over the years. So and that's why I think it's so important for those of us who are a little bit more experienced to really encourage and not being afraid of courage you know those earlier in the career to, to be leading in to be you know, working hard there is no substitute i'm sorry it does it's not easy uh it takes a huge commitment but whatever you've chosen to do whatever career those early years are so formative and you're right you don't actually understand really how important they are and that's why i think it is important that we do everything that we can to encourage that you know as much learning as possible yeah, um, yeah, early on. The only thing I'm going to say, I'm going to give a shout out to, um, uh, and you might not have heard his name for a while, Sir Nigel Knowles, who of <laughs> course was the kind of founding, really senior partner at DLA Piper. And 
it's a fantastic story because he really took it from a regional UK firm to a global player. And he had the vision right from day one. I haven't spoken to Nigel for some years, but you've kind of, I'm going down a bit of um, memory lane right now. But, yeah. but, but what it taught me is about vision and about being actually ahead of the pack mm-hmm. and being really bold. Because at that time, that was bold. Regional oh, firm, UK, say we're going to be global and kind of number one global business law firm. I completely agree. I mean, I think, you know, even even before really London, they were kind of Sheffield and the north of Correct. England, right? And Correct. then, and, then uh, and, and when I joined, even though I was very junior, it was the strategy and the vision that really kind of appealed and, and was pretty clear, which you've just you've just articulated. And he, he's now at another firm, DWF, which we we at BT um, have a good relationship with. And you know, he's just one of those one of those very very impressive leaders who's, yeah. who's achieved a huge amount. Fantastic. Tell me about BT career at BT. Yeah, left DLA, and, and I guess classic reason to some degree. Really enjoyed doing M and A, but felt it was very narrow in, in in private practice. You know, you kind of. You, you got the term sheet from the private equity house, as use that as an example, and kind of you guys document this and have your negotiations, and then and then sign it, and then you never hear you know how how it went until maybe it goes it goes well or or, or it doesn't, and I and I wanted to see a little bit more about the you know why would you buy that business or or divest of that organisation and how does an integration work after you've closed a deal, and uh, and the, the attraction of BT was that it was. It was big enough that it had a, a kind of a discrete M and A legal team within the in-house team, which is pretty rare, certainly yep. in the in the UK. And um, you know, it, it lived up to every hope and expectation that I that I had in that respect. You know, you're kind of you were in at the ground floor. We had a corporate finance team that were kind of ex investment bankers or accountants, and they and our team would would run the transactions together. And back to your point around the learnings and cramming in as much as possible in those early years. I was kind of four and a half years qualified, I think, when I moved, and I still remember thinking, "Geez, I wouldn't want to be too more, too much more junior than I am, right. because you are, you know, running a transaction, you're negotiating it, you're kind of making the calls, and you, so you do rely on your, your kind of knowledge and what you've picked up in the in the early years." But uh, no, I absolutely loved it. I stayed far longer than in that role than I intended. Um, you know, even even then, I, when I joined BT, I was thinking, "Well, I'll get a couple of years in-house experience." probably go back to, to DLA Piper and get on the on the partnership track. On the partnership track, yep. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and suddenly four or five years have passed and and I've been traveling, I've been uh, getting great exposure to senior stakeholders in, in the organization. And um, and I'm thinking I probably need to think about my next move now. Yeah. Um, and am I am I gonna be an MA lawyer forever? Um, or do I wanna do I want to kind of take the next step towards being a, a general counsel? Yeah. And, and and I think that's um, uh, that's one of the tough points. I think is, is once you know what you want to do, I think you can set your stall out and really go for it. And and yeah. but the hardest bit is kind of being clear as to what's next and and kind of being clear in your own mind on that. So that took me a while. But then I had uh, what really was my pivotal uh, move, I suppose, which was to become what we call chief counsel of BT Ireland, which was. Um, uh, obviously, our Ireland company it was kind of we treated it like a standalone business, and it was an opportunity to go and join the leadership team of of that business, run the legal team where there was about five or six in the in the team, fantastic lawyers, kind of hidden away a little bit in Dublin and Belfast, but yep. so so good. 
Uh, and that was probably the, the move that, that made a difference for my career. And after that, um, there was another reorganization in BT. Uh, a new division was created. They needed a, a general counsel. And really because of the experience I'd had in Ireland, I was lucky enough to get that. And, and from there, had a couple of moves within, within that part of the business. We acquired EE, the, um, the mobile business. Uh, so we integrated that into our part of the organization. Uh, we took on the, the government business from another part of BT, which was actually at that point really struggling. And we, we had to issue a profits warning in part because of, of that, which as a, as a GC is, is fascinating to go through that. Yeah. Then we moved in a couple of years later, the wholesale uh, business. I took on compliance reg affairs. Uh, I took on a non-legal team called bid management that was very much a commercial commercial operational team. And I really enjoyed that. So I kind of felt like I'd had a great run and and uh, I'd learned a lot, but I'd kind of done the, the BT business kind of part of the organization. And I had a fantastic legal team, many of whom were able to step up at that point to, to be a successor. So I kind of thought at that point, it's probably it's probably the end of the road for me at BT, but Sabina, who you know, said, "Look, um, what about our global business, and our international business?" Um, which was a bit of a gap on my on my CV at that your point. CV, yep. Yeah, and uh, and it's quite a big. Uh, even though we're kind of known as a UK business, we've got you've got about hundred hundred lawyers in house, dotted around the globe, well, right, uh, okay. outside the UK, and so this was an opportunity to go and. Uh, learn more about the business outside um, outside the UK, where we're very much a challenger, and and lead the the legal team and and, and join the global leadership team. So I had big plans. I was going to be on a plane. I was going to be out there, you know, learning about the diverse cultures that were in the organisation. And then um, our friend COVID hit, as that was about to kick off. So I spent I was doing that role for two years and spent the the whole time basically doing it from my front room. Um, and that was that was that was challenging in the sense that we. We had to make a few changes, or we did make a few changes in terms of um, you know the structure of the team and um, and kind of what we were going to focus on. And you know, you always want to have those kind of conversations face to face, right? Has that changed now, Jeff? Are you essentially back on a plane now, getting out to meet the team? Well, I've just just as we kind of started getting back on planes, I moved to my current role, which is right. kind of back in HQ a little bit. Okay. So I'm, yep. I'm now um, GC for the corporate uh, function. So kind of back doing well, not doing the M&A, but the, the team is within my patch and our digital business uh, yep. and our networks business, um, mainly in the UK. So my uh, successor is is doing the... Uh, the he's on the plane right there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay. And he's loving it. He's loving it. That's a whole lot to unpack in that career, but I'm, I'm going to focus on a couple of things. One, how are the opportunities for your next challenge presenting themselves to you? And uh, I'm sure lots of people are thinking... How do I get those opportunities? Yeah, I mean, maybe I could use the Ireland one as an example because um, yeah. I think it, it brought a few things into play when I when I got that. So the first thing was I, I heard about the role and I knew back to kind of it's difficult to know what you want to do. When I heard that role might be available, I knew that was the one I wanted. And and that helps, right? Because then you can you can go after it. So I I went to see Nigel Patterson, who is, uh, who's now the general counsel of a a listed company in the UK called Curry's, um, but he was he was the general counsel for this part of the organisation. And I said, Nigel, and I knew Nigel, and this is, I guess, point number one, Jim. Uh, you, you kind of relationships and network. Yeah. Right? So I, I knew Nigel because we we'd done a few transactions in Nigel's part of the organisation when I was in the M and A team, and we had a we had a good relationship. 
And I said to him, I just doorstopped him and said, look, I'd, I've heard it might be available. I'd love to do it. And he said, well, it's in Dublin. Uh, and I said, yeah. And I've just literally, my wife has just had our first child. She, he, Jack was like a month old at this point. And I said, I can't move there, but if we can work out the travel, then I, I'll, I'll be there, you know, five days a week if needs be. And he said, well, um, we'll run, we have to run a process. We have to do the interview, but you need to meet the CEO of the Ireland business. Um, I'll set up a, a teleconference for you. This is pre-Zoom and Teams and everything else. So he set up this video conference and I, I kind of in the run up to it thought, this is one that I need to do face to face. So I, I took a day's holiday. I bought a flight over to Dublin. It's only an hour's flight. It's not, it's not the other side of the world. And I went to meet Colm, uh, the CEO face to face and kind of, in fact, the meeting got moved on the day. So I had to change my flight, cost me a fortune, but was the best investment kind of I, I made in, in myself. And these are the stories I want others to hear. You could have just put a time in the diary and had the telephone call. Yeah. But yeah. you didn't. You took the day off, you leave, you paid for the flight, you went in person. You showed, you absolutely demonstrated that this is the person that's willing to do what it takes. I, I know it's only kind of small, but it's mm -hmm. so reflective of what's in store. So if you'd done yeah. that with me, I would have done... I would have been as impressed as I'm sure the CEO was because it, it just demonstrates it. This is the person that's actually thought this is something I want, and I'm going to do what I kind of do what it takes. Um, yeah. So I love I love those stories. It's not going to be in person. I'm going to take a day off, and I'm going to head down there and meet. Well, sorry, it's not going to be online. I'm going to go and you know. Yeah, and that, that that's that's exactly kind of what was what was driving my my thinking and. And then we did actually have the formal interview. Um, it was in London. He came over to London and, and it was, there was a couple of other people that interviewed me as well. And the interview itself, Jim, did, was not a, a roaring success by any right. means. You know, I hadn't done an interview for like five years. You crashed and, and burned, did, did yeah, you? Yeah, I, I, and we laugh about it now. Colm, is, he's, he's moved on from BT, but he's, he's definitely one of my kind of mentors and friends. And we laugh about that interview. Um, but, but, you know, and I kind of say to him, well, if it was that bad, and I knew it was that bad as well, you know, why yeah. why did you why did you choose me and, and he said he said part of it was because you, you you showed the drive and the kind of determination and uh to actually yeah. you know that you wanted it and and i saw you know and then the, the next thing so so going back to your question i think relationships you know network etc the, the kind of the determination once you know you want something to go out there and kind of demonstrate it yeah and then i think the third thing when i got to dublin to start the role that morning he kind of he sat me down and, and it was one of the best feedback sessions that I've, I've ever had because he said look congrats you've got the role i'll back you 100 percent, but here's some things you need to work on right and and um and i really sort of took that on board and subsequently speaking to column i think uh um it was that he, he kind of saw something there it was pretty raw and basic and transactional but um he thought maybe there's something we can do with with this guy and, um, <laughs> So I think it's a combination of things that you, but you own your own career, right? And that's what we say yeah. quite a lot in, in BT is if you make the steps, the right steps, then you will get the support and the backing and people will take a chance on you uh, if you demonstrate the right kind of behaviors and yeah. desires. And Yeah. You own your career. The sitting around and waiting and hoping for things to fall in place and hoping yeah. for perfection, hoping that yeah. the timing is perfect and the opportunity is perfect. Yeah. The two never meet. No. The opportunity can be fantastic. The timing ends up being awful. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> okay. and, and there was that bit of me that that when I when I spoke to my wife Susie and said, "Look, there's this perfect job, but it's in Dublin." 
and Jack is one month old. My, my wife's, you know, a partner in a law firm, right? She's got her own fantastic career. Um, and the looks from her were, uh, it were quite something. Um, she said, so what, you're going to get leave here at 4 a.m. on a Monday morning and come back sometime on a Friday and I'm going to be left here with Jack. Uh, and I said, I said, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very tough on me. Um, and she still, she still tells the story of like I, I'd call her because I was I was staying in a hotel in Dublin for a while. And uh, I, I called her one evening to kind of check in on her and, and Jack. And then I had to call, cut the, uh, the call short because room service had just uh, knocked on the door. And uh, so, yeah, it was a it was a challenge. How did that one go? <laughs> yeah, not so well. Not so well. Um, now, when you look at your role as a mentor and um, people coming up through the ranks, career guidance, what, what is the kind of, what do you look for and how do you help mentor and steer, you know, the next generation coming up? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's a huge part of the job and, and our responsibility um, yeah. to, to leave it in a better shape. So I think, you know, hand on heart, Jim, attitude is pretty high up there for me in terms of, and, and that encompasses things like, you know, work ethic, if, if uh, you know, I, I know you've mentioned that in the past and, and I agree with you, you know, that desire to, to kind of step outside the comfort zone and, um, and do that little bit extra, I think really stands out. So th- that, that's one of the attributes I look for. And then I think in terms of the, the, the support and guidance, um, it's it's kind of squiggly career lines, right? I mean, I think the the idea of in 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 house in particular that you are just it's just linear and you're just yeah. going to go up and get your boss's job and and keep going up the way. I just don't think that really exists that often yeah. in, in reality. And and actually, it's it's not healthy really for the individual because you, you're pretty narrow if you do that. And yeah. so we really encourage sideways moves um, and broadening your your skill set and your experience, because any candidate sitting in front of someone for a role who's done different things and can call upon different experiences um, will be better placed to to, to yeah. get that opportunity. If you're comfortable getting uncomfortable, learning new skills, recognizing you can and you can, you know you're pretty good at doing that, then nothing phases you. Yeah. So the the earlier you develop, I think that kind of those muscles. And being comfortable with that kind of, you know, the, the, the stronger, I think the stronger your career satisfaction, the stronger your career. And the the more you're open to say, yeah, I'm up for that. I can do that. Yeah. I've, I've seen before that I've got the skills to navigate something new and learn, even though it can be, you know, sometimes pretty frightening. The attitude, absolutely number one for me. And just being comfortable with getting new experience and saying, I can take that on. Yeah. And if you've got both of those and you see both of those in your your team or those that are kind of coming up through the ranks, that's what you look for. Yeah, um, no, exactly. And then, and then I think that the as a leader, you know, your, your role really is to give them the, the platform and, and the profile to, to shine, right? And when you find those people, um, you know, I think it's incumbent on us to kind of make sure that they're recognized for the, for the talent that they are and, and, yep. and, and see them progress. There's nothing, nothing beats it. Let's switch tack a little bit. What do you see when you now deal with external law firms in terms of, I suppose, the, the way they deliver service, the way they understand the business? Do, you know, what I often hear, once I went in-house, it, it all changed. I realised mm. what was important and what wasn't important um, from, my, from my law firms. And I realised a lot of time what I was doing 
I was spending some time on the wrong things. Mm-hmm. But it really didn't matter when it went over tents. Tell me about what you look for now as a seasoned in-house senior general counsel from your law firms. Firstly, huge respect for the lawyers in private practice, right? I mean, that is a, it's a tough gig, I think. Yeah. Um, and you've got to be smart and you've got to be resilient. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think, you know, this isn't quite answering your question, but I think that kind of co-working between in-house and private practice, we need to do more on that, right? Because a yeah. lot of the challenges I think we've got, we share. And sometimes it feels a little bit siloed, and, and I think we, we should do much more in partnership yeah. to try and deal with some of the some of the challenges we've got together. Um, but what do we look for? It's the pragmatic advice, isn't it? And it and it's the the comfort working in the grey and giving you a view, yeah. because you know the, the experience that our in house our, our private practice lawyers have is is uh, you know they see the they see the market, they see different industries. We, we, we see our market and our competitors, but yeah. you know, that, that experience is, is invaluable for us. And I often kind of find myself saying, um, look, just give me a view. I'm not going to carry I'm not even going to hold, I'm, I might not even take it, but, yeah. but I'd just love to get you, you know, if you were me, if you were BT, what would you do yeah. in this position? You're talking about what would you do? You've told me what the risks are. You've told me what the, that there is, Let's say it's a 30, 70 risk or a 50, yeah. whatever it is. But then you say, okay, Jennifer, but I want you to tell me what would you do? I'm not going to hold you to it. I'm not, yeah. it, it's, I just want to know and why, um, yeah. which I'm sure, I'm sure you get asked all the time from the CEO you're appointing to. Jeff, and I want the legal answer. Tell me what you would do uh-huh. and why. Exactly. And that's the, you know, the, the conversation with the CEO on this particular issue might be, or whoever the stakeholder is, might be might be two minutes, it might be yeah. five minutes. And you have to condense maybe weeks worth of analysis and yeah. thought and all the rest of it into a view and, and a recommendation. And uh, I think when you've got that degree of trust with your private practice partners where, uh, and I mean partners as in not not yep. a partner of the yep. firm, but just whoever you, your relationship is with, yep. then you're in, a, in such a good place because you can leverage their experience of the market. They don't feel that they're going to be held to to something, and that you trust their their judgment. Yep. And um, and that's the kind of happy place I think with with uh, with law firms. Um, but but you're right. It uh, it takes a while to, and I, maybe all clients are, are different. But I, I'm not particularly worried about any kind of written advice. I mean, occasionally yeah. it's needed, right? But I just yeah. I just want to have a conversation yeah. and and kind of kick it around and, and try and come up with a, a collective view. I'm on the hook for it. It's my call at the end of it. But yeah. you know, they've got such great experience. Yeah, Jeff. I've also heard you talk about uh, running the. The function, the legal function as a business. What do you mean? I hear that quite a bit, but what does it mean to you when you say that? I think I think that this kind of became stark for me when, when I joined some of these leadership teams and we would have operational reviews with maybe um, the sales teams or the commercial team or, or the tech team. And they presented and spoke a language that we didn't, if we're honest, yeah. in, in legal. They 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 had a they had a deck that was uh, that that had KPIs on it, that had um, measures on it, that had uh, outputs based on uh, on it. And we we tend to say, well, we kind of we provided legal advice on these 20, 20 matters, and and it's okay. Well, give me some context for that. Is that is that good? Is that bad? Is it more? Is it less? And I think you know, as a as an in house profession, we it's not something that we've traditionally, 
you know, done. So where we started from was like, we need to get some data, right? We need to know what we're doing and, and we need to be able to measure it because when we say we've done, we've advised on these 20 things, we can say, you know, and that's 10 more than we did last year and we've got five less people and, and therefore the productivity is better. And these are the outcomes that we got to and things that, you know, you, you recognize as being absolute table stakes in terms of uh, running, running a business. And, uh, and so, and, and we, we used to have these operational reviews for, for the legal team. And I tell you, Jim, nothing focuses the mind better than a, a six monthly operational review with, with the boss and, and the rest of the leadership team who are not lawyers. And they're kind of right, you know, and it would be me and my, my direct reports and who were just super. But we, we tried to move towards a, an information set and a set of insights that would, would resonate with our, our stakeholders. And that started from, right, okay, this, let's baseline what we do. Let's be clear as to what our, our strategy and vision is for the future state of the, uh, of the function. And why is that good for us and good for the business? Um, so that might be, you know, it might be playing in a slightly different, you know, that top right box of, of high, highly strategic and complex. But yep. what are we going to do with the, the stuff that's lower, lower left box and, and kind of how are we going to solve that problem? Because it still needs support. What's our attrition levels? What's our engagement levels? Um, so it wasn't all about, about financials. It yep. was actually around, right, how are we going to create a successful mini business? Uh, and and why is it, why is this a good use a good couple of hours of your time to listen to us about what we're yep. doing and how are we helping you? We fully understand your goals, and this is how we've helped you get the outcomes on those goals. Um, and that that was the big uh, yeah I guess another another moment where you kind of think, okay, um, this is quite different from where I was, you know, just advising yeah. on the transaction. But but for me personally, really, I love that part. Nothing focuses the mind like those six monthly reviews with your operational leaders that you're going to present. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and the learning there too for you as a business leader and getting the team to galvanize around, okay, we've got to start reporting and measure, measuring and reporting and doing it in a way which is not filled with legalese, doing it in a way which um, uh, non-lawyers or be experienced business operations professionals can go, I get that. I see the value that you're delivering and I understand how it's better than what we talked about six months ago. Um, yeah. Talk about sharpening the focus. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, one of the, one of the, so we, we, you know, we did this for um, all of this, the four sort of CEOs that I've worked uh, with and, and for, and the common thread around it all, Jim, was the legal team has an almost unique uh, perspective across this business because we will be involved in so many yeah. different aspects whereby you know i don't know the sales team would only be seeing a bit of their a bit of the rest of the, the world apart from their own and therefore the encouragement we got from the ceos and i'm sure this isn't just unique to bt is use your voice um give us the perspectives of what you're seeing in our business what, what's working well what's not don't stay in your swim lane in terms of um, just legals. You know, if you see something is broken or can be improved, now is the time to kind of give your your observations. So that slide that we did of this is what we're seeing, and this and also then we encourage a little bit of this is what we're going to this is what we are going to do about it. We think we can help solve this problem, and this is what we're going to do. And that was probably actually the the slide that they enjoyed the most because that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to improve the business. 
And how empowering was that for you and your team? Because you do, you're right, you have a perspective that no one else has because of the breadth across all of the business. And to be able to pull that together and deliver unique insights, they might not all be right, but unique insights on the basis of, of that experience and that exposure. If I was a CEO, that's exactly what I'd be looking for. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was great. They were, they, were, um, they were good days. Yeah, very good days. What are some of the biggest challenges you see now for legal leaders? What would you call out? Fundamentally, where we're all struggling is is just the, and I know this is, this is not new news, Jim, but the volume of legal activity versus the amount of resource that we have and the cost envelope that we have to play to play with. I mean, you don't come across many GCs who say, you know, I've just got too many people. You know, yeah. I just I don't know, I don't know what I don't know what to do. And that's from you know the smallest startup who have you know real challenges, and you've had a few of them on your podcast, and it's fascinating. Yeah. Right up to the largest corporates who who maybe are actually having to to reduce the size of their team, but they see increasing compliance and and and, and regulatory issues, etc. So. I think that's what binds us together, actually, is, is that challenge. And then I think right now there are, there are obviously macroeconomic challenges that are going to test all of us. And I think yeah. the, the scrutiny on, on legal spend and our on legal departments over the next kind of, I don't know, 18, 24 months, I think is going to be um, intense. And therefore, I think if you, if you look at those challenges, then it kind of, it kind of forces us to innovate. Uh, and it forces us to think differently about how we run the legal team. And and I think the winners are going to be those that can demonstrate a, a transformation where it doesn't necessarily need a lot of upfront investment because that will be in short supply, I think. And, and we know that when you're in the house as a lawyer, you're not going to be top of that tree. To and, and that's fine. That's fair. But we need to think creatively about how we kind of we solve some of those uh, challenges. And then I think I think going back to the kind of the, the similarities between in-house and, and law firms, I think, you know, if you look at some of the things that are getting a lot of airtime just now, rightly so, about, you know, attracting and retaining talent, um, that, that's something that both in-house and, and private practice are, are, are grappling with the, um, the hybrid working and, and where do we land on that, especially for our more junior lawyers, that, that kind of drive for, for to be a purposeful business. And kind of really take the social responsibility and, and DE and I agenda seriously, and, and leave the profession in a different place than we found it. I think those are the challenges that that we have. And, and as I say, I think I think we'll be we'll be more successful if we kind of come together a bit more and try and solve them collectively. Jeff, there is a lot there. There is a lot of work. There is a lot of innovation because you're right. Um, general counsels and in-house teams are. They continue to have increasing volumes of work and yet not increasing levels of resourcing and working mm-hmm. out how to innovate and do that better, where they need to be focusing the time, where what bits can be carved out and be done in a different um, way. And then back to your first point, then being able to report on all of that, being able to actually report in a way which can be understood by the CEO and operational leaders because... If you're struggling, but you can't report, <laughs> that's going to be a challenge. Yeah. And, and that's, that's historically, be, you know, we've, you, you hear the anecdotal evidence of what we're all so busy, but we haven't been able to kind of translate that into yeah. a language that they, that they understand. And I think if you can demonstrate through reporting that you have made change and it's maybe, 
saved some you know some some costs or whatever then you build trust and then and then your your, your credibility for when you when you go back for for some further investment uh, you're in a better place i think yep fantastic jeff i'm going to round out with some of my favorite questions the hardest thing you've ever done personal or professional that you you're willing to share with us well, I did run the London Marathon one year, Jim, and that was back in the DLA days. Though I was, I was much fitter, much fitter then. But no, I think on a serious note, I think, I think you know, we're we're, we're our working lives are are long and intense, and I think it's impossible not to have some personal challenges during that time. Yeah. Um, and and we had one with our second uh, uh, child, Gracie. You know, a week after she was born, she was very ill. She wasn't able to breathe uh, by herself for about a week. We were in um, uh, Great Ormond Street in in London for for 10 days actually and and um and she's doing she's now eight she's doing really well uh, oh. life is a bit more tricky for her and you know we need to we need to kind of keep an eye on that but at the time you know bt oh. were were fantastic and actually but i think to to your question it's it's the subsequent you know you have that issue and then it's the subsequent years and months and years when you kind of there's hospital appointments there's kind of anxiety around can she cope with school and and at the same time, you are trying to fulfill your career and lead the team and, and my, my wife, you know, as I say, having her own career. So I think, you know, looking back, that that was a pretty, pretty hard time, actually, yeah. if, I'm, if I'm perfectly I, honest. I, I, I can well imagine. And there's, you know, sometimes we talk and I, I don't like the term, but we talk about balance. Um, but I, I always say it's actually there's no balance. It is a it is a life of compromise. Yeah. And you've got to work out what has to kind of give in order for the other bit to, to work and what you're willing, essentially, to, to compromise on. But there's very few people that have achieved incredible things without, honestly, the hardship, the suffering, the pain, yeah. um, the loneliness, whatever it might be. The, yeah. I call it the struggle. Yeah, and, and you know, if you're, if you're going to work for... 20, 30, 40 years, you're going to have some struggles, you're right? Struggle. And, uh, and it's, it's in, in finding the environment where you kind of feel like you can see the light at the yeah. end of the tunnel and you get that support that you, you need at the right times. And, yeah, uh, and, and surrounding yourself with the right people, right yeah. mindset, right organisation that, yeah. that does provide you support because it is it is a struggle. Wherever you are, it's a struggle. Sometimes it's a, it's a much greater struggle. <laughs> Uh, for some, that is for others, but it's a struggle. And um, if you've got the right support, the right, and you develop the right mindset, and you help others develop the right mindset, the resilience, and so forth. And yeah. sometimes it's the hard things that creates that resilience. Advice that you'd give to your twenty-five-year-old self. I think life was pretty good when I was twenty-five, Jim. I was just, just joined DLA, bought my first flat in Clapham in South London. I was, <laughs> okay. I was pretty happy. So. If I if I was back to the future and I turned up, I think I'd say you look a bit old, and I'm not going to listen to you. But I think uh, I think I think I worried about the stuff I didn't know that I thought I should know. Yeah. And I remember being a year into DLA and going into one of the partners and saying, uh, you know, I'm 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 two years qualified. I haven't I haven't done this thing. You know, I haven't done I haven't drafted this. You know that that yeah. I must be behind. I must be, and and I was in I was in a hurry like a lot of us are. I wasn't necessarily in a hurry for career progression, but I was in a hurry to kind of learn what it yeah. meant to be a corporate lawyer as quickly as possible. Yeah. And I, I spent probably way too much time worrying about what I have done and what I haven't done, or what I haven't done really. And actually, 
you know, trust the process, right? There's been corporate lawyers coming through law firms for many years. You get there. You, you the, get there. The it's fun. Not, not too many of us say, I wish I'd worried a bit more back then. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't heard that one just yet. <laughs> um, what, one final question. Is there anything that keeps you up at night now, Jeff? Yeah, I mean, I'm a... Uh, uh, I get to sleep fine, but I just can't stay asleep. And I, I, I kind of wake up early, my mind starts going, and then that it kind of is like that vicious circle, isn't it? And then, yeah. and then you, you find you're wide awake. So, yeah, mainly work, I have to say, actually. I don't know if that, that's a bad reflection on me as a parent, but um, it's mainly work-related. And it's not always bad. When it's bad, I kind of, for a period, I, w- I would ask myself, my mantra was like, would the group CEO be worrying about this and, and staying up? All, all night worrying about this and and the answer nine, 99 times out of 100 is 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 no right so i like that yeah, that perspective yeah. you know yeah and um i said that was the last question i've actually got one more time between when you wake up and you check your emails less or greater than 30 seconds <laughs> i'm embarrassed to see it's less. less less than 30 seconds, Jim. And if only it was the email, right? It's the WhatsApp. It's the Teams messages. The Correct. Let me tell you, Jeff, don't be embarrassed. You're certainly not the only one. You're in, <laughs> you're in good company. And on that note, Jeff, thanks so much for joining me. It's been an absolute blast speaking to you. I've had a great time. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jim. I've loved it. Great to, great to chat to you and look forward to seeing you in London soon. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me, Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.